Hi, this is Nathan Owens from the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse in Antigua. Every Tuesday evening at 7.30, we have a live call-in program discussing real-life issues from the Caribbean. Sanctify them through thy truth. Thy word is truth. You're listening to That's Truth, a live call-in program with Dr. David Murphy, designed to answer your questions biblically in this confusing culture. Dr. Murphy has over 30 years of counseling and ministry experience here in the Caribbean and is ready to answer your questions according to truth. Good evening and welcome to another episode of That's Truth here on the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse. I hope that your Tuesday has gone smoothly. Whether it's gone smoothly or not, we are honored that you have made time in your Tuesday evening schedule to join us here on That's Truth because this is a live interactive program, not just here for you to listen to, but for you to ask your questions so they can be answered from a biblical worldview. I'm Nathan Owens, and sitting across the desk from me, as usual, is Pastor Murphy. Good evening, Pastor. Uh, good evening, Brother Nathan, and we're so thankful that the people are listening this evening. Thank you so much for sharing it with us. We are here to answer your questions from a biblical worldview. It can be a question about the Bible. It can be a question about what's going on in the world today with so many new COVID cases. It can be a question about your workplace and maybe a situation that you're facing, but we are here to answer your questions because we are convinced that the Bible has all of the answers for every situation that we will face. While we await your question, we are going to start a new topic that I don't believe we have discussed here on That's Truth in any level of depth, and it is that of yoga, something that is very common in the Western world and has its roots, I believe, in the Eastern world. We're going to learn a lot about it. Pastor Murphy, can you go ahead and define our topic to start us out tonight? Um, well, the idea, uh, the word itself, yoga, um, is derived from a Sanskrit word, yoga, and it really means to yoke. Uh, most of us know that a yoke is a uh, piece of wood between two animals that link their necks so that they can function together and work together. Uh, so it's the idea is to join. Uh, so Hinduism and um, yoga basically is, the goal of it is to join the practitioner with God and to unite him with this absolute um, impersonal God uh, called Brahman. So it's the idea of linking man with God basically. Um that's the historic purpose of, of all yoga, basically, to, to bring about this union between man and God. But I thought it was an exercise program. Well, that is how it has been repackaged. In the West, you could not have come to the West and advertise and market yoga as to bring you in contact with the Hindu God. So you had to repackage it and use it as a form of exercise. And, of course, it disarms the West because they think it has no religious connotations. And uh, that's why a lot of people get involved in it and not aware that it has a lot of... The basic fundamental purpose of yoga, really, is to link man with their uh, Hindu god. Uh, so they've purged it of a lot of the, the elements that are religious. 
and unfortunately there are people in the west who are looking at uh, improved health improve um, uh, mind and quietness and calmness and stuff like that and they've been able to sell it basically as a physical means of improving your health etc etc uh, but when you get into the different exercises and you you use your mantras and and, that's, and um, meditation and stuff like that uh, the Hindu element clearly is there as we have done with many of these cults, I believe with all of them, or these different religions, early on in the discussion, we talk about who founded it, who started it, and give a brief history. Can you do that for yoga for us? Today? Yeah, I, I tried to um, examine it a little in detail, and I discovered that there's no exact historical uh, pinpoint as to when it actually, who actually started it, the historical origin of it. Uh, is is very remote, and but there's no, um, don't seem to be able to say exactly who started the whole thing. However, uh, in terms of its codification and development of yoga itself, uh, it was um, attributed to a Hindu sage who was a grammarian, a man called uh, Patajali. Uh, he is the author of a book called the Yoga Sutras, Basically, it's a lot of what you might call yoga aphorisms, wise sayings, like proverbs, basically. Um, there were over 200 of him, them that he, he gave. He divided them into four chapters, and they were collected about 400 years B.C. And the main focus of these um, uh, aphorisms or wise sayings, basically, uh, is to really deal with the, the mind. Um, later on, um, uh, Patali... Uh, the, I want to make Patanjali, that's his name, Patanjali. Um, his whole goal was to free the human soul from its um, identification with matter. Remember we talked about Scientology, the whole idea that man's problem is that he is ignorant, that he's too wrapped up with the natural universe and he forget that he was a spiritual being. I remember I also mentioned that this was Hindu thinking, and uh, this is exactly where it came from, the same idea that uh, mankind is, is too wrapped up in the material world with his senses and, uh, and the natural phenomenon. And the whole idea is that he must disconnect from that and understand that he's a spiritual being and that he's part of this impersonal Hindu god called Brahma. So it is almost, that's why I said that the, the Scientology and a lot of these other, uh, like Theosophy and others, they've stolen a lot of the ideas from Hinduism and carried it over and repackaged it, call it by different names, but substantially, if you look at maybe four or five of them, you'll find that the same core teaching is there, just they're using different language, but the same ideas and same concepts are there because they're borrowed ideas. Uh, after he um, came up with this idea of yoga, uh, using these different exercises to try to um, get man into a state where he has a higher consciousness, the pantheists, who are what you call the um, the Vedantists, uh, f uh, these are the ones, Hindus, that believe in, in pantheism, that everything is God and God is in everything. They borrowed yoga uh, of this guy, um, uh, Patajali, and uh, incorporated it into the new form of Hinduism, quite frankly. But substantially, all forms of Hinduism uh, yoga is part of it. It's an essential part of it. And uh, this guy is who is responsible for these main ideas that were now incorporated uh, into this uh, new form of pantheism. 
roughly what time period? You said it was about 200 B.C.? No, 400 B.C. 400 is when his was collected, the, okay. the, these aphorisms that he wrote. But Hinduism, I, I am I'm struck, it's, it goes back as far as 2000 B.C. It's apparently it's been around for a long time. At least the ideas of Hinduism have been around for a long time. Uh, but so this is nothing new, nothing novel. It's just that it was brought from the east into the west, and the problem was how do you market it in the west? And uh, the way that we package it was to just emphasize the physical part of it, and to, uh, so that people engage in it without even realizing that they're engaging in, in the cult practice as well, because a lot of the uh, the yoga practice is linked to occult practices, especially when you talk the, the Kangalini force within the spine, and you have to release that force, mm -hmm. and it goes through the channels of the body, and you've got certain chakras or power centers that you have to release so that this power begins to flow, and as your power begins to flow, you become more enlightened, more enlightened. So they're trying to release a force within you that's there, uh, and you have to use um, the eight limbs that he talks about, we'll talk about it sometime later, so that you can get these forces released in your body until you become more what we call enlightened. You, 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 you yoke with this, this God eventually because you become, your mind becomes so um, disconnected with the physical world around you that you merge into this higher consciousness. It's a, all around the world today, it's the same concept. The, whether it be the New Age movement, whether it be the Rastafarian movement, whether it be the drug movement, the whole idea is a higher conscious movement where that you, 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 you no longer identify your personality. You become absorbed in this super conscious power that's above there. But it's the different channels that are being used that really makes a difference. But they're all trying to achieve the same thing, oneness with God, basically. You're listening to That's Truth on the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse. We're broadcasting from the island of Antigua, and the program is a live interactive program, and we look forward to your interaction. There's a number of ways that you can communicate with us. You can call and be put live on the air, 1-268-462-7420. You can WhatsApp or text your question to 268-782-1454. Or you can join us on Facebook Live. Go to the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse Facebook page. Click on the Facebook Live video feed, and you can comment your question right there in the comment section on your device, and it'll get passed along to Pastor Murphy in a timely manner. We are glad that you have taken time out of your Tuesday evening. And until we receive your question, which, by the way, does not have to be on the topic of yoga, but until we receive your question, we will continue this topic of yoga as we explore some different cults and different world religions in this series we're doing here on The Lighthouse. And Pastor, years ago, in I'm going to say, let's say 2000 B.C. or 200 B.C., it was much harder to travel between, let's say, the Middle East, Israel, and China or India. Would you agree with that statement? Yeah, I would, I would, I would think so, for sure. So how were they supposed to, in the Far East, in India or China, how were they supposed to have the answer of Christianity, the true... Is it okay that they have their own religion? Do all religions head to the same place? I think if anybody, if, I think everything goes back to the Tower of Babel when the man was scattered. And I do believe that uh, humankind had some basic concepts about God that became perverted over time with legends were added, etc., etc. Because if you look at all of the core religions of the world, 
they all have some element of truth in them. There's no question about that. It's all the idea of trying to connect with God. The problem is the the way in which you connect with God, the different avenues, different channels. Sometimes it's by sacrifice, we sacrifice animals. Uh, sometimes by feeding the gods food, whatever it is. Uh, of course, in the, in, the, in, the, in the biblical way, it's through the atonement and the shedding of blood. In other ways, it was through mind and through meditation. But all are trying to seek, basically, to connect with, with God in some way. And I do feel that all there was a core belief that man is somehow alienated from, from the, the supreme being and that he needs to get back. But again, uh, with that core idea, as you can see, as people separated, Remember that when God called Abraham, he called Abraham from Ur of the Chaldees. And we are told in the book of Joshua that Abraham's forefathers served idols. So Abraham's family were idolaters as well. And because the, the knowledge of God was lost, is when God decides to select one person called Abraham to start over and bring about tr- this truth so that through him and through Israel would come the Messiah that would become the savior of the whole world. But he had to start with somebody after this knowledge was lost. And he sovereignly chose Abraham. And it was through Abraham and then through Israel that the Messiah would come, that would become the means. But was God uh, salvaging humankind, taking the initiative to save mankind that, uh, that this happened? But there's no doubt that men had a core knowledge. As a matter of fact, Nathan, if you check the... Um, History and archaeology about the like the Babylonians and the Assyrians, and most as a matter of most most uh, civilizations have stories about creation, have stories about the flood, and about eight people being saved. I don't know if you're aware of that. Uh, so it tells you that they have a core knowledge of of, of of human history, but over the years and over the centuries legends were added to it, fiction was added to it, and everybody tried to make Noah their Noah. And so the Noah in the Bible is given different names under different systems. But it's very, very clear that there was core beliefs that people understood that was somehow perverted and distorted, and God had to start some way, and he started with Abraham. So will those people who were lived their whole life or raised up under these false, perverted religions Will they be held accountable? Will they go to hell? In my, I, the Bible is very, very clear that a person who doesn't put their faith and trust in Christ is, is going to face uh, judgment. The severity of that judgment is dependent on the amount of light a person has. I think Paul does that in the book of Romans, that mm-hmm. depending on how much light you've got. Um, it, it is very, very clear that our responsibility is to get the news to those people. So if people today um, in our time are living who are damned who haven't heard, the onus is on us to sh- take that responsibility because we've been mandated to go into all the world and preach the gospel. And remember that if I say to the wicked, thou shalt surely die, and you say to the wicked, thou shalt surely die, and you give the message, you're free, you're, there's no blood on your hands. But if I say to the wicked, you shall surely die, and you don't tell the wicked, you are held accountable. Yeah. So it's a very serious matter. I don't think that we really get the gravity of standing before God and giving account for people who we were responsible for not giving the glad tidings because we were tied up and doing different things and we made different had different agendas. 
So it's a solemn warning to us in terms of what God wants us to do and what the church must, is function of the church. Pastor, we have a WhatsApp question from Europe. Thank you to the individual who sent this in. Good evening and greetings. In the Old Testament, is the word Elohim, God in plural, used for other beings besides God? Yeah, the, the, if you check the any Strong's Concordance, uh, or you check any good Bible dictionary, you'll find that the word Elohim is a, a word that's commonly used even for pagan gods. As a matter of fact, it is even used for judges. Uh, for example, when it says, um, there's a passage in the book of Psalms where it says, that I say that you are gods. And it's referring to the judges who were acting in the place of God in terms of, of doing judicial sentences. And they were acting as though they're not responsible. Uh, and then God says that, you know, you think you're gods, but uh, I'm going to deal with you in the same passage. So, yes, the word is word uh, Elohim is not only limited to the Hebrew God uh, in the book of Genesis and the book of uh, Old Testament book. It also refers to pagan gods as well, because it's a generic term God, quite frankly, um, that is used. Thank you to the individual who sent in that question. Maybe you have a question. You can call and be put live on the air. The phone line is open and available, 268-462-7420. Or you can WhatsApp or text your question to 1-268-782-1454. As we continue our topic about yoga, as we await your question, Pastor, how does yoga propose to help mankind? Well, uh, again, um, basically, the problem of humankind in terms of what the yoga um, teaches is like what we said about Scientology. The problem is human ignorance. Uh, we really are part of Brahmin. Uh, we are basically spiritual. But the problem is the same. We are all so wrapped up with this material phenomenal world that we really uh, are not able to rise to any higher level of understanding who we are so that we become spiritually united with the ultimate uh, absolute impersonal God that the Hebrews talk about. So it really is intended to uh, help the practitioner get out of ignorance and the illusion and lead into deeper concentration that results in this bliss, blissful ecstatic union with this ultimate reality. That is basically what it, it is all about. And the way you do that in classical yoga is that you discipline the mind so that the practitioner no longer identifies his thoughts and his sensory perceptions with himself. Uh, it brings him to a higher level where that, that sense of the material world is lost, quite frankly, and he has this absolute, uh, his thoughts now merge with this universal consciousness that is supposed to be there. And the other thing it is designed to do, uh, Nathan, is that um, they believe that something called prana, which is a life force, is pervasive throughout the whole universe. This life force, of course, is Brahma itself, this ultimate God. And they believe that they need to free that up within the human being. And the way you free that up is that uh, there are seven psychic centers in our spinal cord, column, uh, our nervous system. And you have to release that prana or that, um, that life force using yoga as a means and when you have there 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 are actually seven of these uh um, sh chakras that you have to uh, get this power released through 
and it goes from one to seven. When you get reach the highest one, you become enlightened, so that you now are actually you're you're now at that higher conscious where you're connecting with God, and you have this aesthetic feeling. Uh, and excitement, and uh, you don't have all these depressions and problems that you have, quite frankly. Um, but to to get these, to these uh, chakras that you have, to these power centers, you have to follow um, Patajali's eight limbs, or eight stages. Uh, you remember that um, Buddha has eight noble points as well that you have to follow. Okay. It, and it's believed that this this uh, data, this eight limbs, are somehow connected with uh, Buddha. So, in other words, he's borrowed some of Buddha's ideas and carried it over into Hinduism. So that's why you got eight, the eight path, eight, eight uh, way to uh, eight paths in in um, in Buddha, and now you got these eight limbs or eight stages uh, to get this this uh, this power called prana uh, released within you. And that's why I say, Nathan, that all yoga. It designed to help release this Kundalini force within you. It's like a, it's like a power at the base of your spine, basically waiting to be released. And you've got these different power centers in your nervous system. So using these means of yoga, deep breathing, meditation, and stuff like that, and these exercises, it's designed to put your body in a physical state where these power centers are now release that energy and it goes from one stage to the other through your body and they've got channels in your body that this thing travels to until it comes to the very top of your head and then when you reach that stage you have become enlightened <laughs> uh, you know it's I you know I, I don't know about you but when I study these type of things I wonder why people turn to myth rather than simple biblical truth that makes so much logical sense how they become so enamored and I wonder if it's not because of the fancy terms that they use and the complexity of the matter that seem to make it somehow esoteric and therefore much more enlightening than, than simple Bible truth that tell you repent and believe and put your faith and trust in Christ and I think it's this uh, this complexity that seem to make it so scientific that is attractive to the modern mind who don't seem to have any like if anything that's too simple. <laughs> I think it also has got to be an aspect of it's easier, it's less offensive to say in my natural state, I'm just ignorant than it is to say I'm a sinner, I'm a sinner yeah, and yeah. there's nothing I can do to get right with God. Yeah, yeah because human pride, basically, uh, we like to work with our problems. Uh, we don't like to feel that we're dependent on anything. And when you tell a man he's a sinner and that he's alienated from God and he needs to humble himself and repent of his sins, at heart, man is a rebel, quite frankly, and he wants to be very autonomous. He doesn't like to be constrained, quite frankly. And uh, the, the battle uh, for humankind is not in the mind. It's in the heart. And that's that's so. It's not that ma man's problem is a moral problem. I mean, it's not an intellectual problem. It's not he doesn't understand, but his his his, his moral. He wants to live. It's like I uh, read a book one time by um, Ravi Zacharias. Um, Can man live without God? I think I mentioned this on the broadcast at one point in time, and he talked about the Huxley brothers who introduced yeah. heavy drugs and stuff like that, and uh, they finally admitted years later that they had pushed uh, the evolutionary theory and the fact that there was no God uh, because they just wanted to live wild lives and God interfered 
with their morality and they had to get rid of God and they make no problem. That's, that's why we pushed it. And that gives you an idea how, how modern man is. He wants to live as in, how he wants to live, no restraints, and especially when it comes to morality. And therefore, I think you're right about that matter. I think it's much more easier to believe that you are is a problem of your not understanding and ignorance and that fact that you are guilty sinner before God, held responsible, and therefore need to repent and put your faith and trust in Christ. I agree with that. You mentioned drugs. Some of these uh, religions or cults uh, use drugs or something to help to release your mind and to help you to uh, separate yourself from the physical world. Did you come across anything like that with yoga? Well, the thing with yoga is that you the highest point is when you have no control of your, your mind any longer. You surrender your mind. You you have no personality. In other words, you don't even you don't even feel as though you're you are Nathan. That is gone. And that's where I think the real danger is, is when you come to a point where you don't have control of your mind and you've opened that door because you're meshing with whatever's out there. You think you're meshing with this Hindu, God, whatever it is, I am very, very convinced that they are meeting something, but it's not God. I'm very convinced that the enemy has been able to deceive them. And whether it be using drugs like marijuana or using cocaine to get what's called a higher conscious, where the same thing happens, you long, no longer use, know your identity. You no longer realize that you're Nathan. It's as though, what did people tell, tell that on this thing, that you, you just mesh. It's like, you just, it's like a, you're like a river flowing into the sea. Where you get into this this stage, but you don't you're not conscious who you are any longer. That, to my mind, is where demonic powers begin to take over. And I think when it comes to Hindu, it's the same thing. This idea of releasing this power in the base of your spine, and it travels through different channels called prani. Uh, and uh, your whole purpose in you is to release those and release those and release those. And the more you release those, you come to this higher consciousness where you completely surrender yourself to this Brahma. It's like the Christian surrendering to God. Let me put it that way. But yeah. in Hindu, you're surrendering your mind and losing your identity. So as a do you no longer exist. Are there biblical principles or verses that come to your mind that are serve as a warning to that concept of losing control of your mind? Well, I think the classic example that would help us to deal with it is what Paul was dealing with in Corinthians chapter 12, 13, and 14 with tongues. Okay. Remember, this, these people got into this ecstatic thing and got so excited about it that, uh, as a matter of fact, Paul said, no one speaking by the Spirit can call Jesus a curse. Right. Right? And remember that Maranatha means Jesus is coming. Anathema means curse. The words song alike. And in this process of speaking tongues, people were using those type of words. And Paul said, this cannot be of God, quite frankly. And then remember what Paul said? I'd rather speak, I think he said, a few words, three words with my understanding than a thousand words that I don't understand. Yeah. He And, and then, the, the, now remember this, the Bible puts emphasis on the mind, the control of the mind. Uh, if you read Philippians, it talks about four different types of mind, a single mind and a consecrated mind, etc., etc. But nowhere in the Bible are we asked to meditate to the point where we are no longer conscious. And the other thing, Nathan, I might say this, when we begin to examine the form of meditation involved in yoga, uh, again, it is focusing on one thing uh, throughout your meditation. So if I focus on this cup, I just concentrate on that cup. If it's a mantra, I keep saying the mantra. And I just keep focusing and focusing and focusing until I lose consciousness. That's the whole idea, to lose consciousness. 
where you don't even realize it's a cup any longer. That's the danger, I think, involved in marijuana, in crack cocaine, involved in different religions that are asking you to come to this higher consciousness. Uh, and of course, in the, in, the, in the Old Testament as well, meditation, read the Psalms, is always on God, God's works, God's salvation, God's redemption, God's uh, healing, or God's helping. It always has content. It's never just... Um, you know, meditating on grass or meditating on uh, a picture, for example, is always focusing on God and His works and His character and His attributes. So clearly, people who indulge in this kind of thing have really gone beyond the warnings of Scripture and the examples of Scripture and find themselves in a danger zone where I think they've become influenced by demonic powers. We have a follow-up question from the individual in Europe that is listening. In the book of Job, is the being, which is called Ha-Satan, really the devil, or is it a different being? And what does the Hebrew grammar indicate by putting Ha, or the H-A, in front of the word compared to the word Satan in the book of Genesis? I can't answer the question immediately because I don't have the the uh, the the book before me. In, in other words, you're looking at the Hebrew. I don't have a lexicon. I don't have a thing to check that up. What I would like to say that I will in, look at it and uh, I'd like to respond to it maybe uh, the next time uh, because it's worth investigating. But I don't think there's any doubt that um, the scripture is dealing with one one being called Satan whether he be in the Old Testament or the New Testament, uh, is the same character. Of course, the different words used for him in the New Testament because you come into the Greek language. But uh, there's only one devil that uh, is, the Bible speaks about, and um, he carries different titles, different names. He's called Apollyon. Uh, he's called Satan. He's called Devil. Uh, he's called a ruined lion. He has different description terms that all speaks about his character and his venom and his his um, his intention is evil. But uh, I will check that out because I can't do it right now. Uh, it needs investigation. I just remind me to do it next week. Uh, but let the person know that we are going to respond to that. Thank you very much for your question. And Lord willing, next week's episode, we will start out with this question. You're listening to That's Truth on the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse. We're broadcasting from the beautiful island of Antigua on 1160 AM, 92.3 FM, and online at www.radiolighthouse.org. You can also join us for this program on Tuesday evenings on Facebook. Go to the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse Facebook page, click on the Facebook Live video feed, and right there on your device, you can not only listen to the program, watch behind the scenes, but you can also comment your questions in the comment section on your device. If you're not on Facebook, you can call and be put live on the air. Call 1-268-462-7420. Or you can WhatsApp or text your question to 268-782-1454. Pastor, back to the topic of yoga. You mentioned the seven chakras. What exactly is a chakra? Is it like a node? Is it something I can feel or it's something imaginary? Well, the the word chakra itself uh, comes from the Sanskrit word, which means wheel or disc. And uh, in yoga... 
these are supposed to be psychic energy centers that are at critical points along the uh, up and down the human nervous system. Um, and they've got seven different locations to tell you that they can be found. Um, the first one is called the Muladhera. Uh, it's at the base of the spine, uh, right below your bottom, basically, your coccyx bone, basically, the base of the spine. Uh, this is associated with darkness, dullness, and animal uh, instincts. It is basically the most primitive part of the human being, uh, human conscious, and it has to do with human desire to survive. It is here that this Kundalini energy sleeps, that needs to be released. So it has to be aroused, and the way to arouse that is going through this uh, eight limbs or eight stages of yoga. Uh, so, and as you release that, it, it, it gets higher and goes through these other centers. But that's the first chakra, uh, the one that's at the base of the spine called it the Malan Harda. The second one um, is found in the region of the genitals. Uh, it's called the Swadi Histana. And it is where a person who is under the influence of this chakra uh, is obsessed with sex. So this is the sex part of the energy that needs to be released as well. The third part uh, is one in the ear of the navel. It's called the Manipura. And um, it's uh, people living at this level uh, are driven by ambition and desire for power and success. So when you release that, you become a very ambitious person. Except. I was expecting you to say <laughs> food. <laughs> uh, the, the fourth one is one called Anaharta. Uh, and this one is uh, deal with the heart, part of the heart. Uh, and it deals with selflessness uh, or having selfless emotion, quite frankly. The fourth one is one called Viscuda. And it's in, it related. Uh, it's located in the ear of the larynx and is associated with asceticism and spiritual discipline. And this is when you begin to uh, come to the level of beginning to expand mystical experience. So you go from these one. This is number five. The other, the sixth one is one called Ajna. It's located above and between the eyes. You ever saw the third eye? You ever see the yeah. Indians got this this yeah. this thing? That's the third eye. And uh, it represents the vision of God and is considered, when you reach that stage, very high spiritual in your life. And then the last stage is called the Sahasrara, and that's located in the top of the head. Uh, and it, uh, when you reach that, you reach the highest level. Someone living at this level is now said to be enlightened uh, as to so reach the final level. So, so these energy centers, each one of these uh, have to be released and you release that through these different disciplines that they talk about. Uh, but there are seven of them. Is it a one-time release? Is it something you have to do every time you have like a Bible study? Or how's that work? <laughs> no, because the remember the diff seven different stages. Uh, so you have to, by these disciplines that you are successful, you move to a higher level and a higher okay. level and a higher level. So the more you are successful in these eight um, limbs of or different things that you do, uh, it means that you're releasing more of this prana, more of this prana. You're coming to a higher level and a higher level until you reach that final stage in the crown of your head, basically, where you become finally enlightened. Now, you're probably going to talk about this later on, but I'm curious, as I attain these higher levels, do they say that you become a better person and you sin less? Do they even talk about sin? Yeah, you do become a, a better person because when you look at the different uh, limbs or the different levels that you have to go to, 
you'll find that um, as we, if we look at it, we'll find that it really has to do with the first four has to do with you looking out and being a better person and dealing with people and et cetera, et cetera. The next four has to do with you looking in. So the first four uh, helps you to prepare to start looking. So you look at the outward world in the first four and doing a lot of things that are good and nice. But you do all of that to come to a stage where you begin to look at your inward world now. So everything is turned in, in the last four. So it, it, it's a, it's um, it, it. There is moral principles. Uh, it, it, it does offer you to be a better person in terms of how you deal with people, how you respond, how you treat people, etc. So it's a moral philosophy as well. And this is maybe where it has this attractive element in it. You've mentioned multiple times now these limbs. I believe you said there's eight of them. What in the world is meant by that? But by limbs, you're talking about different forms of um, exercises, things that you do. It's like different stages you do. For example, the first limb is called moral restraint. And the whole idea is you must learn to self-regulate your own behavior. And there are five yamas... Uh, they call yamas uh, that are involved. For example, moral restraint involves five things. It involves number one, self-control. So you've got to learn to uh, really control yourself, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. It involves benevolence, showing kindness to people. It involves truthfulness, being honest and, and not tell lies. It involves even exchange. It means don't take something that don't belong to you and don't charge more than you should charge, basically. And it all involves detachment, where you are not coveting what other people want, etc. So, so it's a moral philosophy. But that's the first thing you've got to learn when you go into this um, yoga. Uh, that's the first thing you've got to learn. Learn the, 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 these, these things first. Learn moral restraint. So learn to do these things first. So it's, it's a moral philosophy as well. So when you think you've mastered that, now you go to the second limb, which is uh, personal observ uh, observances. Uh, looking at yourself now inwardly deeper so there are five personal things that you need to look at number one one has to do with um, cleanliness uh, of course keeping yourself clean your body clean etc etc one has to do with self-study where you try to educate yourself and improve yourself basically and then you have to learn contentment where you learn uh, a gratitude and uh, you learn appreciation and then the other one is self-discipline where you try to not run away from your problems you try to uh, face your problems and deal with it and the other one is uh, surrender and this is where you surrender uh, your intelligence down to a higher power so all of these, until you got to the last one, all of these sounded like good things, even things you could find in the Bible. Mm -hmm. So so what's wrong with them? Well, the problem is, what's the purpose of these? Okay. These are these are what you might call auto-soteric uh, salvation. You're doing these things actually to, 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 uh, to unite with God so that your way, in other words, just we talk redemption and salvation is through faith and trust in Christ. This is how you get salvation uh, mm -hmm. in the Hindu system. This is how you get uh, salvation in yoga. Remember that if you don't reach that stage, you go through rebirth, right? Mm -hmm. So when you do all of these things, eventually you will no longer be uh, have any sins to pay for, any wrong to pay for. When you do that, you now mesh with the Hindu God and you lose your identity. So it's really a 
uh, auto salvific way of, of saving yourself basically is a like every every religion of every every movement it all has to do with bringing us closer to God so this is really a, a, what you might call a salvation of works you become the better person and the whole purpose you hold in doing that is to finally unite with God etc uh, etc et I don't want to distract you from your going through the limbs but I'm curious does Christianity teach that we will lose our identity when we get to heaven in the afterlife will we still be individuals mm-hmm. now the Bible is very very clear um, that we are never going to be God uh, we are never going to uh, mesh with God so that we lose our identity uh, we will always be who we are, but we will be changed, transformed, and become like Christ. But we will never be Christ's. And this, again, is part of the heresy of a lot of these movements, that we become a point where we become Christ, just like Christ became Christ conscious, that we become Christ ourselves. That is not true. Because a lot of what they call the avatars, yeah. You know, you saw that movie, The Avatars. Avatars are ascended masters, people like who lived before, like Plato, uh, like Buddha. All of those are avatars, and Jesus Christ is an avatar as well. <laughs> Put them on the same plane. Uh, so we will never lose our identity as, as human beings. Uh, we will always be, and that is one of the great things. about. The other thing they think that's very interesting with Christianity, all of these different movements is trying to get rid of the body so that you don't have any physical body. The idea is that your spirit now meshes with this great higher spirit. Christianity, man is not man without the body. Hmm. Uh, don't ever forget that. That's why the body has to be redeemed. You know, people, the Bible, Jesus is coming, bringing the saints with him, bringing their spirits to reunite with their body that is raised. So that is, that's one of the unique features about Christianity, that the body is, to be a human being, the body has to be part of your humanity. And that is unique about the Christian faith. All these other uh, mind religions, and, and mind, uh, etc., is the idea of getting out of the body and escape from the body. It goes back to the old Greek idea of Gnosticism, quite frankly. You were talking about the limbs. Uh, the first one was moral restraint. The second one was personal observances. Right, and the third one has to do with postures. This is now the physical postures that will help the body prepare for deep meditation. That's where now you start doing the exercises, you see. see so you're preparing the other part of yourself, and then now you're ready for these exercises. But these whole exercises are not an end in themselves. It's preparing you for yoga meditation. And yoga meditation is not an end in itself. It's preparing you for uh, enlightenment. So one stage leads to the other. That's why these all eight are important before you can reach that final stage of enlightenment. Right? So you've got that. And then the, the fifth, fourth one is called uh, breath control. And this has to do now with controlling your breathing. And when you control your breathing, you're regulating the life force energies within you as you, as you control your breathing. And that is part of helping you to release these power centers within you. That's why breathing is such an important part of the exercise within yoga. It has a, uh, a purpose of releasing this, uh, this prana or this life-giving force that's supposed to be flowing within you. So as you learn to control your breath, you, you, your, your body absorbs more of this 
prana or this life force, basically. So you're helping to release it. Even your thoughts, Nathan, are part of this, this prana, which is this life force. So you, as you learn to control your, your thoughts as well and your breathing, you are letting this energy more release and more release and more release and more release. But that's where the exercise is coming, to help you to control your breathing because the life force that is there needs to be released and go through these power centers, etc., etc. Now, all of this is fiction, of course. But uh, again, um, can you prove it? That these are these power centers in your body. I mean, this is just something somebody came up with, and etc. Yeah. Et but you, you know, that's why people find it. I cannot. Why people find it so hard to believe the Bible, yeah. but they believe mythology and fiction, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. It, it's just stunning uh, how there is this complete antipathy towards God of the Bible. But this willingness to embrace anything coming from the East or anything that's more bizarre that seemed to be more ridiculous than anything else. So it's almost comic, you've got to laugh. Uh, and I hope that people who practice this thing don't think I'm just laughing at them in that regard. But uh, it's just funny that uh, people are that, of that nature. Is it that people's eyes are being spiritually blinded? Or are, like, can you, can you be involved in yoga? and innocently, uh, naively involved uh -huh. as an exercise, but it still have a negative effect on your spirituality or on your, your soul? I don't doubt that whatsoever. Okay. I, think, I think that's part of the problem. I must say that's part of the problem with the West. Quite frankly, the more you delve into these type of areas, uh, you begin to understand that the real problem in the world is not the world itself, it's the church. And a lot of these things have siphoned off into the church. And there are believers who are practicing a lot of these things, don't even see any connection between these type of things. You know, you know, anybody that deals with the occult or deal with uh, demonology or deal with, with uh, uh, deliverance of people, etc., et will tell you this, that if you're going to help a person and he has been involved with something of the occult, you have to get rid of whatever you have in the house. If you had books, you have to, like in the book of Acts, you remember Ephesus? They went and burned They burn all the books. Yeah. So if you had some paraphernalia that you were using in occult practices, you get rid of it. The same thing that people need to understand when it comes to believers involved in these kind of activities. Uh, and I think that there are people who are engaged in these things, not being aware of the spiritual ramifications and the effect it can have on their life. I would not be surprised if you talk to some of these people that they can't pray. They don't read their Bible. I wouldn't be surprised that they lose interest in, in God and stuff like that. They get interest more in the exercises and stuff like that. But that, that ex becomes a priority now. I would not be surprised if you talk to people that they find that strange. I don't pray as I used to. I don't read my Bible as I used to. I don't have interest in those kinds. My interest has now come in this different direction. And I think the enemy is so subtle that he has to use every means possible to move men away from God. And I think that he has hoodwinked a lot of people through this process. WhatsApp question from Trinidad. Good night. Listening to your program, I once had a friend who practiced Reiki and dealt with healing of the chakras. She had many clients who would come to her for healing. She would simply place her hands on them and they would feel differently and be healed of whatever trauma they were facing. And she said the angel, Ariel, assists her with healing her clients. All I would say to you, that is a cult practice. That is not biblical whatsoever. Um, uh, I, I would, you know, there are people that do have occult powers 
uh, and who have the possibility of helping people come to them. Uh, so there's no question about it that there is there are people who have these kind of powers, but these are not these are not divine powers. These are not Christian powers, because number one, these chakras that we're talking about they only exist in people's mind. Nobody knows if they're really there. This is just what Hindu says. So, uh, um, so how you know that is actually the healing is taking place, right? Uh, it's just like voodoo. There's no question that there's power in voodoo. There's no doubt about that. You can they can take dolls and put pins, right. and you can feel the, the the. There's no question. There's demonic powers involved in that whole process, and the same thing with this 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 whole this whole idea of uh, people uh, healing the chakras and having traumas in the chakras as well, and so on. So this this is a person that uh, she might say what she wants to say, but quite frankly, she is operating on the basis not of divine power but of demonic powers. Pastor, what should the listener do or how should they respond if they have visited at some point in the past, maybe even before they were saved, uh, someone for healing or for assistance with trauma that they went through who was dealing with, uh, let's say, the chakras or something similar, and now they're listening to the program and they're saying, Pastor, my eyes are being opened. I've been involved in something that was contrary to Scripture. What am I supposed to do? Well, one of the first things you've got to realize is that if you look back on when that happened, and you might have benefited something physically or something uh, emotionally, but I can guarantee you that you're going to suffer spiritually. So you can almost go back to that from the time that thing happened, whether you were helped, how you were helped, and you will discover that you either begin to lose interest in God, interest in church, interest in the Bible, interest in, 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 in prayer. Something happens spiritually. If you benefit from the devil in a particular area, he takes back from the other area. So I would say to defer that person that um, you might have benefited, uh, you feel better emotionally, you don't have the depression or whatever it is. But from that point onward, I would suggest that your spiritual life begins to go down. The other thing is that when you come to the realization that the means that you've used is not biblical and scriptural and within the parameters of, of uh, um, biblical theology, I would say that you need to renounce um, renounce the the practice and repent of the practice. Uh, but you should have a prayer of renunciation as far as that is concerned. And then if you had, if they gave you anything that you had to take or whatever or maybe wear, you get rid of that, quite frankly. You get rid of all the occult paraphernalia, any, anything to do with that. But there has to be renunciation and repentance. You know, when the um, uh, New Testament people were being baptized, I'm told even in the first century, uh, because all of them came out of paganism, and especially a lot of them, part of their baptism, they had to offer prayers of renunciation. I renounce Satan. I renounce being involved in this kind of. So, I mean, that's a uh, fact mm-hmm. of history. Mm-hmm. We don't do it much now, but I think the problem with us is that we don't realize that people are involved in a lot of activities before they got saved, even mm-hmm. that are satanic. That has, you know, that has um, connections, and those connections remain. The other thing is transference, uh, Nathan. A person who has the capacity to do an occult healing and they put their hand on you, they transfer that uh, evil force to you as well. And that's why you find that once you've benefited, you have struggles because that principle of transference is there. A very good book I would recommend to those who might be listening, who might think that uh, this is fiction I'm talking about, is a book by Dr. Uh, Koch, K-O-C-H, 
I saw it in CLC here in Antigua. It's called Counseling the Occult. He is a German Lutheran pastor that spent 40 years of his life uh, ministering to people under occult oppression in Europe and all over the world. And he wrote a very, very good book. In it. And he explains a lot of these things. And uh, this is a sane, solid uh, biblicist uh, who uh, does things the biblical way. But he explains a lot of these things in his own experience. We have a number of questions that have come in over the last couple of minutes. Thank you to the individuals who sent them in, and we will get to them in the order that they came in. The Facebook question that just came in, can a cult person be delivered and become a Christian, and would it be very difficult for them to be delivered? No, I think it can be delivered, and you might be surprised. There are some people that have um, certain psychic abilities. Um, Sometimes it's handed down because of transference. And even after they're saved, they have a temptation to revert back to that because they have it. They just have to renounce that like anything else. I mean, it's like a person, to use a simple example, take a person who comes out of a very immoral life Mm -hmm. before they were saved. Even after they get saved, they will still find that the temptation is still there. So what are they going to do now? Use what they had before? No, you renounce it. And you begin to deal with it. And that's why the Bible talks about sanctification, uh, mortifying sin. And in the case like that person who comes out to the cult, of course there will be healing and Christ can cast out. The, you know, he said that the strong man is able to deliver uh, he's stronger than the one that is strong, stronger than the strong man. Christ is stronger than the strong man. So he can deliver that person, surely. Uh, there'll be people. Um, Book of Acts, uh, Ephesians, the Ephesus, where all these people that were involved in the cult that got saved turned around and burned all their books and became part of the church. I mean, clearly that's a, 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 a biblical example that this could happen. So clearly people can be saved of the occult. No question about that. And to say that they can't be saved would be saying there's a power stronger than Jesus Christ and Calvary. That's exactly right. Uh, a WhatsApp question from Antigua. Good evening. Does the Trinity have any resemblance of a cult or idolatry attributes? Well, here is the dilemma that a lot of people, the Hindus got a trinity, and the Babylonians had a trinity. That's why I say to people that there had to be a core set of beliefs that everybody knew at some point in time, right? The word uh, Elohim, as you know, is a plurality, and let us make man in our image, but it's a singular verb, so there's a a concept of plurality within the, the, the Godhead, quite frankly. Uh, but what the devil has done and the enemy has done, in my judgment, is that he has created something similar to what exists. In other words, the trinity of the Hindus or the trinity of the, the Babylonians or the Egyptians is not the same trinity of the scriptures. They have three separate gods, right? Uh, the trinity of the Bible is you have you have one God nature and three persons within the God nature and that's the difference between them in other words Jesus is not the Father the Father is not etc uh, etc et but they are one uh, in, in substance and one in essence quite frankly so there is uh, within paganism a distortion of the biblical trinity but it's not the same because they're dealing with three separate different gods and, and a lot of these gods by the way um are either married or not married and, you know, that kind of thing. And you know, they, they take human um, sexuality and transfer it to the gods, etc., etc. But there is no, there is in uh, paganism 
um, examples uh, that try to distort the biblical concept of the Trinity, but it, it's not the reverse. It's Christianity is not a pattern after the the Trinity of these different groups, because we discover the Trinity not from different religions. We discover the Trinity in the Scriptures itself. I can, we did a program on this, but I can show anybody who's willing to spend some time that the Father is called God, the Son is called God, the Son is called God, and all the attributes that the Father has, the Son has, and the Holy Spirit does. Uh, so which is, this is not something that we concoct it. This is not something we even totally comprehend and understand and can explain without there being any kind of residual doubt. But this is something that is revealed and um, we accept what God's revealed in His Word, even though we may not be fully able to comprehend it. It's not that it is against our intellect, but it's, it's above our intellect that we can't fully comprehend it. As I said, the finite can never comprehend the infinite. And that, that is a given. But uh, so to answer the question, there are in uh, paganism uh, attempted replicas of the biblical trinity, but these are distortions of, of what the trinity is all about. Pastor, we have a call from Antigua. Brother Williams, thank you for calling, and go ahead with your question, please. Hi, good evening, sir. How are you doing? Yeah, you sound good, man. You sound alive and well. Yeah, but well, I, I, well, you disown me. What's that? Uh, I said something you tell you tell if you tell the jobs or yeah. I'm running it and don't forget me no tomorrow was fair. Yeah, uh, next time I'm in that direction, I'm not sure as it'll be tomorrow, but next time I'm in your direction, I will swing by. Yes, sir. I think you gonna help me out tonight. I mean, Mark chapter sixteen. Okay. Verse fifteen to seventeen somewhere there. Uh -huh. You can explain that to me when Jesus said it's a disciple and them go and tell him they shall speak in other tongues. What about the other tongues, right? All right. Okay. Mark sixteen fifteen to 17 says, And he said unto them, Go ye into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved, but he that believeth not shall be damned. Verse 17, And these signs shall follow them that believe. In my name shall they cast out devils. They shall speak with new tongues. Mm -hmm. Well, that, that's it. Yeah, I, I don't have a problem with that, that verse because that's a promise uh, and a mandate given to the disciples. And clearly in the New Testament, uh, that is exactly what happened. We, we have in the book of Acts uh, that that did happen on the day of Pentecost. Uh, we also find in the book of um, Corinthians that within the Corinthian church, again, that is uh, that did happen. But you notice that these are called sign gifts, these signs? Uh. Yeah, those are special gifts given to the, uh, the apostles to uh, vindicate and authenticate the fact that this faith, this way, this new doctrine of Christ, which was now... Uh, moving out of his Judaistic womb, basically. Uh, so when they were presenting this 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 gospel and this this uh, new 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 uh, new covenant, uh, etc., they needed uh, authentication, and that authentication came that they had special gifts that, in the, as they were preaching and they were teaching, they would be able to perform these different types of things, so the people would know that this is true. This is true of God. So those were originally authenticating gifts. The book of Hebrews mentions that, but in Hebrews chapter 2, I think it is, mentioned that um, 
that um, they were vindicated by these different gifts that the Lord had given to them. So I don't have a problem with that. The problem you have today is that um, were these gifts to be continuous throughout church history? And again, uh, it is very, very clear when you look at church history that these gifts disappeared as they were as the church was built and the foundation was laid and the superstructure was laid these gifts were no longer relevant uh, to the message and therefore these gifts faded out you also find in the in the uh, old testament the same thing there were times in the old testament when god began a new movement that that movement was followed by 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 miracles especially in the time of elijah and elisha but you go from elisha and you go right down to to, uh, to Malachi, you find that there are no particular um, miracles that happen there. So every time there's been a significant movement of God, there has been a miraculous time to vindicate that this is the movement of the Lord. And when the New Testament started and the church started, you need authenticating and uh, to vindicate that these were this was a movement of God and the Lord was behind it. So therefore, these gifts and signs were given to vindicate that these men were actually called and used of God. But over a period of time, those gifts uh, were not used. Uh, and so if, you, if you go into church history, for example, you'll find that there lapses where you don't, within hundreds of years when the gift doesn't occur. No, that doesn't mean, by the way, that uh, something should happen that the Lord again would give a gift. I don't. I don't dispute that. The problem I'm having today, Mr. Williams, with these uh, this tongues movement, is that if you are going to use tongues as a saying that I have the spiritual gift of tongues and God has given it to me, you have to follow the biblical pattern. If the Holy Spirit gave you a gift, the Holy Spirit gave you a book as well to tell you how to exercise this this particular gift. What we have today is that that's not what's happening in the church. Uh, Paul says, let two or three speak at one time, and there must be an interpreter. That doesn't happen in the church either. So clearly what we have today is not what the New Testament is uh, speaking about. And there is an artificial gift of tongues. I don't know if you know this, but uh, voodoo doctors speak in tongues, witch doctors speak in tongues, Mormons speak in tongues. Uh, people that have the most bizarre faith speak in tongues. So there is a superficial, artificial gift that is not of God that tries to imitate that. And that's why we have to be very careful in the church. Which one is it? Which one is it? And that's why we know which one it is if it is done according to how God said it should be done. And that's why there must be regulations to guide these, these things because the devil is on the rampage and he is imitating everything that God does because he's an ape. He apes everything God does, including uh, artificial and superficial gifts of speaking in tongues that don't really uh, re relate to the biblical one. So we've got to be very careful in that but, regard. But, Pastor, uh, I, I know what the one need asks. You the Holy Spirit come upon them and I know uh -huh. I believe that it's different tongue, different language, so everybody could understand them in their own language. Uh -huh. But I the one in 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 Magdia, I tell her what with new tongues. Daddy where I have puzzle, the new tongues, like where you the new tongue well, speaking. Uh, again, I, I would like to check the word new there because um there, there's two different Greek words for new. 
new in respect to time, new in respect to nature, and I'm not too sure. I can't tell you off the bat which one it is. I have to check that one out. But tongues, the word that is used there is the same word that is used all over glossolalia. That's the same Greek word. There's only one Greek word for tongues. That's the same word that is used there. What he's saying to these disciples is that they'll be speaking in, in, in new tongues, that is, tongues that they themselves don't speak in. Like, are not all these people Galileans, but yet we hear them speak in our own tongue? So they speak in a different tongue. Yeah, they knew that one, yeah. Right, right. And I think that's what it's referring to. I don't think there's any difference between tongues in Acts, tongues in in, in, in Mark, and tongues in... Um, in um, Corinthians, as a matter of fact, in the Corinthian passage, in explaining why tongues was given, uh, Paul took them back to a passage in Isaiah, uh, where the Lord had promised Israel that one of the signs that he was sure that this is a, he, that he's doing something among the Gentiles is that he would speak to them in different tongues. And the tongues that was used in Acts chapter 2 was a sign to the Jews that God was going was beginning a new movement uh, religious movement, quite frankly. So it, it, it was a per, it was a human tongue designed to awaken Israel to the reality that God was now fulfilling promises, promise, and bringing about the new 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 covenant and the new age, basically. Okay. Okay, my brother. All right, thank you, my brother. Thank you as well. God bless. Say hi to the wife, please. Yeah, you're welcome. Yes. Okay. Th thank you very much for the call. Have a blessed night and stay safe. Continue to encourage others to tune in to That's Truth here on the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse, 1160 AM, 92.3 FM, and online at www.radiolighthouse.org. Pastor, we have about three or four questions come in for every one question that you answer, so we got plenty to keep us busy here, and thank you to those who are sending in questions. We will answer them as they come in. A question that has come in from Antigua. Good night, gentlemen. A believer who used to practice yoga for stretching and relieving body aches after working out, knowing what yoga is after salvation, but never previously thinking of it in this way or practicing it in this way, can the believer use the stretching methods that helps the body without being tied to the worship if there is no connection whatsoever to the idols? Well, look, I, I think if you are stretching and doing these things to release this Kongalini force in you and these um, sh chakras and paracentas, I think that's where you're wrong. Uh, if you're just uh, doing the normal exercises uh, to stretch the muscles, etc., I don't see anything wrong with it. Uh, so I, I think that there are two different things here altogether. If you're doing it for the purpose that uh, yoga was intended, uh, you, you're on the wrong track. If you're doing it simply for the exercise of the, the muscles, I don't see any particular problem with that part of it. Does the same principle of not eating meat sacrificed to idols after becoming aware of it apply to yoga? Well, I would say this. If, if, if the knowledge that you have now, it becomes offensive to somebody else. Uh, and there are people in your church, for example, who would have, who maybe studied and say, you know, this is, this is really uh, rooted in the cult paganism. And uh, they feel that if you are doing these things, it's, it's offended them. Well, the Bible says, I will eat no meat while my brother offended. If it's not an offense cause, I don't see why there should be a problem. But if your conscience bothers you in this matter, God is greater than your conscience. So if your conscience bothers you, it's something you should stop 
uh, and that, that's a biblical principle right there. Another question that has come in, when and why did the Trinity have a controversial debate before it was fully implemented? Well, that depends on the history of um, doctrine or dogma, etc., etc., and I can't, off the bat of my head, give you the specifics on this, but we, we do know there was a lot of debate uh, in regard to trying to formulate the concept of, of uh, the biblical teaching on, on God. Uh, and by the way, a lot of it was done because of false teaching began to infiltrate the church. And whenever there was false teaching, it, was, it forced the church to come together to really try to sit down and, and uh, examine the scripture to see exactly what the Bible teaches. That's where you got the Nicene Creed and the Chalcedonian Creed. Uh, all of these came about as a result of controversy either about the Son or about the Holy Spirit. And, of course, there's controversy about the, the, the concept of how are we supposed to view God? Uh, how can the Son be God, the Father be God, and the Holy Spirit be God? How do you explain that? Uh, and uh, this is where the church came together and the theologians came together. And the only explanation that they arrived at, which is makes sense, is that you've got to accept what is revealed you can't twist the Bible to say something it didn't say. Now, and, and by the way, the only group that does this today is the Jehovah's Witness. The same scriptures we have, the same scriptures they have, but they cannot comprehend how you can have God the Father, God the Son, and still have one God. They can't comprehend that. They, they and that, so they are trying to. So they think that when we say that Jesus is God, we are saying that Jesus is the Father. <laughs> they don't understand the biblical doctrine of this whole thing. We are three persons but one God essence. That's what the Bible is teaching. Uh, and, and, and that's where it's... And again, how you can put that in words, how you can make that understandable in a way that we... Because all we, all we know that once you have three persons, uh, how, how you have one at the same time, or one essence, we don't understand that, quite frankly. And that has been a difficulty with the Trinity. But again, the Son is eternal, the Father is eternal, and the Holy Spirit is eternal. So you've got three eternal beings, quite frankly. How do you explain that? Yet there's one God. And that's where the church has been put to the challenge. And the only solution to the problem is there's one nature, one essence, one substance, and three persons who share that nature and share that substance. So that whatever the Father is in terms of its attributes, is holy, is eternal, He's omnipotent, he's omnipresent, he's immutable, uh, he's infinite. Uh, you know, those terms can be, you can go to and trace them, and the Holy Spirit have all those characteristics, and the Son have those characteristics. And then what God the Father accepts, like worship, uh, praise, we find that Jesus said worship and praise too. So, and we're only supposed to worship who? God. Yeah. So we're left with a, a situation where the controversy forced the church to think this thing through. How do we explain it? And that's where they came up with the idea of a triune God, the Trinity. Um, but there's no other way of explaining it unless you come up with polytheism, three separate gods, or modalism, where the Father is the Son and the Father is the Spirit. But again, that doesn't make any sense whatsoever because when Jesus is being baptized, uh, the Father speaks, He is there Himself, and the Spirit comes. So how, how that that even creates more problems now, <laughs> right? 
So, and then the other thing I would say to you, Andy, and if you listen to the radio, when you study the lives of the great, the great books on theology, and you need to do that, uh, we today are very, very shallow. We don't study great books at all. We like something very simple. We don't like to be forced to think. We like to be spoon-fed. But I think when you get into deep studies on this particular matter, and you understand, uh, I remember one I was doing, Francis Schaeffer, uh, the 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 chief apologist at one time, but now he's deceased. I remember he pointed out one thing that stunned me. So he said, "How could there be eternal love unless there be at least two? Hmm. That stunned me. That was like that was like a, a a revelation I never thought about. To be very honest with you, so he went even arguing from eternal love that, that there had to be a trinity, uh, uh, etc. But again, if you don't read great books um, that stretch your mind and, and really feed your mind, um, a lot of these things you struggle with. And my last point is this. I have no doubt in my mind that the complexity of the Trinity is the answer to God's infinity, that we can't comprehend this. And this, it is, not, this is what marvels me, because if I could just figure him out, uh, quite frankly, the, the the wonder would be gone, the marvel would be gone. But that 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 wonder, that marvel is there that I can't fully comprehend this thing altogether. So this makes it quite unique. All the other gods, you've got three different gods, you can explain that. A dozen gods, you can explain that. But to talk about three who are one at the same time, uh, it is something that really, really stretches the mind. And that in itself, that mystery, uh, lets me know that the Christian God is the real God of the, of the entire universe. The individual who sent in that question says, I'm not a Jehovah's Witness, just fully God-fearing. I have a follow-up question or thought. With reference to the answer, God is not the author of confusion, so why hold to the Trinity when God never specially stated in the Bible to worship him in three parts? Well, if you go to uh, the book of Isaiah, uh, for example, the... um, the fact that it's called holy, 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 believe it or not, if you read some old commentaries, that is emphasizing the Trinity. Interesting. Right? Uh, so that is that is not, uh, and you read in the, um, in the book of Revelation that they praise the Jehovah and they also praise the Son. And, and the, the, the things that, the, the, that are for the Father are also given to the Son. Uh, I don't think it's a matter of confusion when it comes to the Trinity for me. It's a matter of uh, a complex uh, belief that cannot be fully analyzed. Uh, But to me, it's not a problem. I can understand the Father, I can understand the Son. I can understand if God said that the Son is eternal and He's eternal. And by the way, if God is eternal, God must have an eternal Son. Uh, etc. So it, it might be confusing for others, but it's not confusing for me. I just think the, the mystery and the wonder of it, it awes me into just submission and reverence to recognize that this is something that is so profound and so so esoteric, if I might use the term, that you never ever put God in a test tube and come up with a final answer, that He's beyond all our comprehension, all our understanding. Another question from this individual. When was First John 5-7 tweaked or interpolated? And the verse says, First John 5-7, For there are three that bear record in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Ghost, and these three are one. 
What? Okay. Sorry, I, the answer to that question is the person is probably looking at the notes in the modern versions. There, normally that verse, for example, are not found in some versions. Okay. Right, and that's where he's probably asking when was it tweaked? It's not, it wasn't that it was tweaked. It's just that there are different manuscripts. And there are some manuscripts that are older than some other manuscripts. And there are some manuscripts that have this verse in it and some that don't have this verse in it. The most modern translations do not include this verse. And they'll have a footnote telling you why it's not there. So uh, to answer the question, they're just trying to... The Texas Receptus, which is the uh, manuscripts that the King James was uh, translated from, that verse is there, so they put it in there. But the Westcott and Hart verse which use a different set of manuscripts. That verse is not there, so it's not included. But they do put a note saying that uh, why it was not included, etc. So no one could provide an answer for that. It just has to do with the manuscripts that were used in the translation. But all of these translations are trying to protect that particular verse. So even if you don't see it in a modern translation, they'll let you know that there are manuscripts that have it. And uh, and so that's a, a question mark there. Uh, by the way, the one that was used there in Mark as well, Mark 16, that yeah. was, yeah. There are, that section of Mark is not in some of the manuscripts as well. Okay. It's in the Texas Receptus manuscript, but it's not in some in, in the other manuscripts as well. That's what happens. We have a number of questions here before us. So if you have not heard your question yet, do not tune us out. Uh, stay tuned, and we will get to your question, Lord willing, tonight, if not in tonight's episode, in next week's episode. We have about 11 minutes left in this episode of That's Truth. Pastor, another question from Europe. Is suffering for the sake of Christ something that we should desire for? It's an interesting question, especially in this day and age with COVID and regulations. I, I don't think anybody really wants to suffer, quite frankly. But I do feel that as a person gets uh, more committed to God and more committed to Christian faith, Christian faith and really appreciates the full significance of the death of Christ, I do feel that uh, you can come to the point where you don't mind suffering for him and you wouldn't. Uh, I don't know if I would. For example, I've often thought about if a guy put a, he- a gun to my head and asked me to renounce the Christian faith, uh, I probably would tell him shoot. To be honest with you, but again, that is that is one of those those you can just say that now you're alive. But if it was real, right. uh, you're willing to make that that kind of a price. I think if it's a matter of renouncing the faith, and I think I would do that. Uh, but I would say to the person, you know, go to the Apostle Paul and see. He said that I may know him and the right. fellowship of his sufferings, being made conformable unto his death. The Apostle Paul had such a deep appreciation for what Christ has done in saving him and putting him into the ministry that the Apostle Paul had set his mind to suffer for Christ, to understand some of the sufferings of the Lord, what it meant uh, for him to go through all he's been through. And I think a Christian can reach that uh, level, And uh, but I think it's a very deep spiritual level that a person can reach, but I do think that it can be attained. There were people that used to seek martyrdom at one time, uh, I mean, really, that back in, in the first century, second century, people who really just wanted to be martyred because um, they had such a profound faith in God. I would say to the person in Europe, I think that one of the big problems we have today is that Christians are not willing to stand up for their Christian faith because they will suffer, not necessarily physical beatings, but imprisonment, incarceration, hefty sums of money, 
etc., etc. And I think that a lot of Christianity has been watered down because people are not willing to take a stand, especially on moral issues. The real battle today is the year of the moral issues, to be very honest with you. And I think that Christianity has become a uh, movement that has lost its moral clout and its moral power. It accommodates these moral moral issues and bring them into the church. And I do feel that in Europe in particular, that the European countries have gotten away with a lot of things that they should not have gotten away. I think Christians should have taken a stand, like things about homosexuality, things against lesbianism, things against transgender. All of these, we should have taken a stand. Things about even uh, prayer in school, reading the Bible, and so, and so on. Do you know that things like yoga gets into the school, transcendental measure got into the school? All of those are religions. It's just that they're packaged as scientific methods of, of helping people with their mind. And I feel that Christians have not taken the stand that they should. I think parliamentarians have surrendered. Uh, where's the will before Sir so Gramble Sharp uh, or the Zacharies that are in Parliament and willing to take a Christian stand against social ills? Uh, I, I, I feel that as a result of our failure in, in, in taking stands on these matters, Christianity has become uh, very, very diluted and has lost its moral clout and its moral power. Here's a question. I would like to hear Pastor's comment on Romans chapter 8, verses 16 to 18. Those verses say, The Spirit itself beareth witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. If so be that we suffer with him, that we may also be glorified together. In verse 18, For I reckon that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. Well, I'm not too sure uh, how much commentary is needed there. Uh, for example, the Spirit beareth witness with our spirits that we are sons of God. And I think that the believer, uh, at some point in his life, when he has doubts and fears as relative to his salvation, I do feel that there's that inner conviction that he finally arrives at, that he's conscious that the Spirit is uh, in line with his thinking in that regard, and he has the assurance within that he is a child of God and that he's redeemed. I do feel that that is what Paul is talking about here, an actual confidence of the inner sense that one is secure in Christ, I think you arrive at that level, and I think that's where the Holy Spirit witnesses to you. Uh, in terms of the other part, which has to do with the sufferings, uh, it is very, very clear that, uh, you know, he that lives godly, the Bible says, in another place will suffer persecution. Suffering is uh, part of the normal Christian life. And uh, Paul talks about if we suffer with him, we reign with him. Uh, I think the degree to which we are involved in our Lord's suffering will be the degree to which we are involved in the Millennium Kingdom in terms of our rewards and stuff like that. No doubt about that. Remember he said he would have been faithful, uh, had five cities given, uh, you know, whatever. Clearly our rewards and our functioning within the Kingdom will depend on the extent to which we were devoted and the extent to which we have suffered for him. A man who has gone off to, say, um, the the uh, Muslim countries and doing a work there for God and has to live in the shadows and sometimes maybe even suffer imprisonment, maybe uh, something happened to his children. I mean, can you imagine a, a man that in the West that the Christian life has pretty much been 
uh, on a silver platter. He certainly is not going to reign uh, at the same level involving the same kingdom ministry as that man would be. The Bible makes that very clear that the extent to which we are involved in the kingdom which is to come will depend on our faithfulness and our willing to suffer for Christ. So I think that is pretty clear in that passage. In your opinion, Pastor, how many people would visit church nowadays if Jesus himself was preaching? I, uh, well, I don't know about uh, other people, but I would think most Christians that I know would be there. But it probably wouldn't be the kind of uh, preaching you'd hear in these mega churches. Oh, no. Not uh, politically uh, no, correct. No, no, no. The, the, the problem with the mega churches, in my judgment, is that they are marketing a message that appeals to the carnality of uh, the average person in the pew. Uh, it's it's not about you don't hear about sin you don't hear about judgment you don't hear about hell uh, you, you you get messages that pretty much has to do with uh, building your self image and uh, self realization and so on it, it's actually pop psychology to be very honest with you uh, but solid Bible preaching expounding the word of scripture that is seldom you find in the mega church uh, online there are always these narrative preachers telling stories that tickle people's ear get laughter and claps and people call that uh, blessing, quite frankly. A f- Facebook question. Concerning yoga, I'm told that while I'm meditating, that the spirit can leave their body and they be in a faraway place. Can evil spirits take over? Well, that's my point. I've been saying, if you've been listening to the program, that that's exactly my point, that you must always be in control of your mind. The moment you lose control of your mind, you open the door to your soul. And I think that's where demonic powers actually take over. I, uh, when I dealt with drugs and marijuana, and I, I dealt with that at some extent because I think that's exactly what has happened to a lot of people. I see people on the streets, for example, that um, heavy on drugs, uh, and uh, they're talking to themselves. Yeah. Uh, very, very. They, they're having a conversation, no doubt about that. And I feel that that is one of the saddest things going to happen in the future in terms of this drug culture that we have, that more and more people are going to become demonized. And quite frankly, I think it's going to reach a stage when you're walking the street, you're going to have to be looking around because these people are going to be given voices to do things to you and to me that can injure us. And I think that's what happens in a lot of cases. Another Facebook question. When he says, my father and I are one, can I say that he is God? That who is God? When he says, my father and I are one, can I say that he is God? Talking about Jesus? Yeah, we would interpret it that he's one in essence, one in, 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 uh, one in essence and one in nature. That's what we would, would, would take that to mean. A lot of people, the JW, take that to mean that he's one in purpose. Uh, and again, there's something about that word I can't remember. Um, I'll, I'll check it up next time. But there's something about that particular word that, that uh, conveys the idea of one in nature, one in, uh, in essence, quite frankly, as opposed to one in purpose. I forgot the particular Greek grammar that surrounds that particular verse, but that is what we'd be saying, the same one, I'm one in nature, I'm one in same essence. You remember he said, if you see me, you've seen the Father? Yep. In other words, w- what God is, the Father is in essence and in uh, nature. When you see me, I'm in essence in nature uh, between them. And we have time for the final question that has come in. What It's a WhatsApp question from Anguilla. Good night. Regarding the theory of humans having a sixth sense, is it a natural instinct which humans really have, or is it just an idea related to witchcraft and the occult? 
I think I don't. I, I really don't know how to respond to that question. Uh, um, whether it's witchcraft or not, I I think when people say that, I think they're saying that people have a, a sense of intuition, um, and I think it, it, to some extent uh, we've all had a sense that something is going to happen, and it does happen. Uh, I think that's what we perceive it to be. So I'm not too sure if you link it with witchcraft or, or not ever. I know that the in yoga they talk the third eye, which is the mark between the two there that you should be able to perceive as you get into higher consciousness but uh, I, I can't really uh, definitively say that it has to do with witchcraft or whatever I just think that people mean that there are times when people just have an intuition about something and generally it happens and uh, that's what you're referring to we have lots of material to, still to discuss on the topic of yoga, and we will continue that next week. But, Pastor, as we close out this episode, what is true salvation? How do I know that I am a true Christian? You know you're a true Christian when you have been convicted of your sin, you repented of them, you put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ as your Lord, and you believe in the finished work on the cross. When you do that, you're saved, and you're saved forever. And... Is it possible for me to be convinced that I'm a Christian, to know for sure? You can know for sure, uh, not only because of your changed life, but I would suggest you can know for sure because of the testimony of Scripture that affirms to you that if you believe and put your faith and trust in Christ, you'll never perish, no, never, ever perish. The Master himself said those words, and those are definitive words that give you absolute assurance. Thank you for joining us for today's program. We pray that the Holy Spirit uses the truths shared from God's Word to strengthen your faith. Now you've heard it. That's truth. Thanks for listening. Remember, you can hear more answers to life's questions on That's Truth, Tuesday at 7.30 p.m. on the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse. If you're in Antigua, you can listen at 92.3 MHz FM. If you're in the Caribbean, you can listen at 1160 kHz AM or listen online at www.radiolighthouse.org from anywhere in the world or you can subscribe to this podcast. Looking forward to having you join us next time.